I love what you've done with your um your mic. You've got the whole Madonna thing coming, which will come into, you know, which is in keeping with one of the songs that she was talking about. Anyway, let's do it. <laughs> Papa, don't preach. I'm in trouble. Okay, let's go. Liz, when you and I both went through university, there were, and doing our social work qualifying programs, there were there was a lot going on in um, the corrective services and prison sector, wasn't there, in Australia? There sure was. And we, because you and I both went to the same university. I we was did. 10 years prior to you. Um, but when I was there... Tony Vincent became the head of our social work school. Yes. Um, and he had just, my understanding is that he had just come post trying to uh, look at radical changes within the prison system in relation to the way prisoners were being treated. But also, I wouldn't be surprised if he was also really trying to get in a lot more programs um, and hopefully some social workers into the prison system. I mean, his book, his book's really interesting. I don't know. Did you ever read it? I did. And um, by the time I got there, he uh, was still around, but not the head anymore. And he, um, but the work he had done, the legacy he had left was really strong. And it was, there was a lot of work he'd done with colleagues in the social work faculty at the time. And so I came out of that experience actually really wanting to work in corrective services to the extent that I did my final placement in Sweden and specifically went and visited prisons in Sweden because I'd heard so much about the radical ways that they were working with um, restoration and um, rehabilitation and uh, and it was a real highlight of being in Sweden was actually being able to explore all of that and it all came from the work of Tony Vincent. That's so interesting. I didn't know that about you, my friend. Well, there you go. Like, and I never ended up working corrective services later on, even though the passion for it was really alive at the time. It's really interesting. It was an interesting time in Australia because uh, basically mental health services, um, mental health hospitals per se, um, or residential mental health um, hospitals started getting closed down uh, and had been happening for a while up until that point. But what it meant for the prison sector was that actually more mental health services had to be relocated, right? Like actually, and that's where we have ended up with what we have now, which is a lot of forensic services units or mental health service units happening within a prison setting. Right, right. Because when I was there in the early 80s, there was also, so the Richmond report had been released. uh, And as you say, the, the psychiatric or the mental health services or the I think they were even called asylums then, Mim. Yeah. Uh, were being shut down and people were being relocated to live in community. Um, but uh, I guess we should probably explain why we're talking about these topics. And, and, also, ma- and also welcome everyone to the podcast. <laughs> and that too. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Social Work Stories podcast. Really great to have you all with us. Sorry, Liz and I got taken away in that conversation. I'm Mim Fox and I'm here with Liz Murphy and um, we're just ready to go, Liz, aren't we? 
Let's just do it. Let's just do it and maybe explain look, the reason why we started talking about the Australian, I guess, mental health services and the prison system of the 80s yes. and some of the transformation that was taking place then is that it parallels the story that we're about to hear from a, an American social worker, Mim. That's right. An American from uh, uh, Georgia. Georgia? No, Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Atlanta Georgia. Georgia. And look, um, I, I just want to say a shout out to that social worker as well because uh, we're always asking um, our tribe, our colleagues, to send us in beautiful stories of practice. And this one social worker um, did just that and we really thank them for that. It's a great story. Uh, one thing I do want to say is that sexual assault comes up quite a lot. It's a feature of this story. And, um, and there actually is quite a graphic telling in it of a rape, of a sexual assault experience. So... Um, if that is going to be a trigger for you, we ask that you maybe don't listen to this episode um, or just be, really steal yourself for what's coming. Um, it's not a great, it's not a huge thing, Liz, but it is mentioned and I just think uh, our listeners should just take some care around that. Yeah, and that that it is in the context of a therapeutic group um, and that the behaviour was um, uh, representative of what was going on in the group. Um, and if, like, if you don't want to listen to it, don't listen to the story, but Mim and I will be talking about that particular way in which this social worker worked with the group of women prisoners um, using using music. Um, and one of the things that we wanted to to mention about this amazing social worker is that she comes from a music background. Yeah, had studied music and then did her masters of social work. And what a what an amazing combination! And you can see it played out in her work with um, residents of a male prison and also a, a woman's prison um, and the the focus of her story is around the use of music in group work practice within the context of a mental health unit inside a prison. Exactly. So enjoy everyone and we'll um, speak to you afterwards. Bye. social worker in Atlanta, Georgia in the United States. I'm also a composer and I majored in music composition in college. I got my master's of social work a few years later and for my practicum I was placed in a county jail mental health unit and I was not happy. I did not want to be involved in a jail or prison. I've never been in, inside one. When I thought of jails, I envisioned danger, criminal masterminds, cops and robbers, bank robbers. But I later found out that the correctional system in the U.S. is actually something much different and a place that social workers can truly help society's most vulnerable people. So to give it some context, in the 1970s in the U.S. there was a movement of deinstitutionalizing people with mental illness. So there were mental health hospitals, but they were closed across the country. And the motivation was, was positive. For decades, people who were in mental hospitals essentially stayed there for years. They decompensated. The mental hospitals themselves were 
essentially institutions. And so abusive staff really would be protected by the red tape of the hospital. So the idea was to close the mental hospitals and fund mental health services in the community. So the idea was that mental health patients would get funding to live in their own apartment or group home, funding for transportation, for medication. So in theory, that idea is excellent. The reality is more complicated. So for example, patients with dementia might wander away from their home and not be able to articulate their address. Another example, college students who have a psychotic break may not be aware that their hallucinations or suspicion of others are actually symptoms of a disease at all. And also women or men who are sexually abused and you go into prostitution or some type of sex work may not realize that they have post-traumatic stress disorder. So you're dealing with very vulnerable people who may not realize their symptoms are symptoms. So let's say someone with dementia wandered away from their house and is walking in your backyard. You don't know this person's name or who their family is. The person's confused. So you call the emergency number 911 and some police and an ambulance arrive. Now if that person's hygiene is fine, they have future orientation, they don't want to harm themselves or anyone else, but they have no ID on them, the, the police really have to do something to protect that person. So unfortunately, because of the mental hospitals that were closed, jail tends to be sometimes the safest place for them to be. So many jails and also prisons in the United States now have mental health units that are essentially like many hospitals within the jail itself. So the setup is similar to an acute mental health unit in a hospital. Once the patient is stabilized, they go into, it's called general population or gen pop, but they're in a, in a unit with other people who are stabilized and who, who have mental illness. So there is kind of a sense of camaraderie, you know, just similarity to what, you know, people can, can relate to. So in other words, Closing down the mental hospitals had a great goal, but the result was much messier and more complicated than, than was planned. Another factor that's pretty messy, as I call it, is the relationship between sexual trauma and incarceration. So compared to the general population, the rates of history of sexual trauma are higher among inmates in a jail or prison. So this does not mean, of course, that people who are molested or raped as children will become criminals. That's not a causation. There is a correlation, though. If, let's say, a relative or neighbor was sexually abusing you, using drugs might provide a momentary escape. Also, thanks to the United States War on Drugs program, people are arrested for nonviolent drug possession and end up getting sent to jail instead of treatment centers. And that is something that there is pressure, positive pressure to, to help prevent. What's even more complicated is human trafficking. Many people, conservatives and liberals and everyone in between, 
are in agreement on this issue. Human trafficking is dangerous, abusive. It, sh it should not exist. But talking with the people who are trafficked, in my experience, don't always see themselves as victims. So many of the women who would meet the description of prostitute or a trafficked person say that that was a choice they made. A lot of them had told me they were sexually abused as a child by a relative or uncle. And they say, well, they're not being abused now. They're choosing to have sex for money or they're choosing to have sex for drugs. So in their minds, it's a choice. And for some of them, it's they see it as empowering. And as a social worker, that's challenging to, you know, we, we have to meet the client where the client is. And that was always pretty messy. That was pretty, pretty challenging. So this brings me back to my original interest, social work and music. So my supervisor in 2013 knew I have a music background, and she directed me to create a music therapy group. So I did one for the men's unit and the women's unit. Everything I do is based on research. So I went to work. I went on PubMed, Google Scholar. I got all my research together. So what I did was a type of music therapy called receptive music therapy. So we would play music and discuss it, play songs, discuss the lyrics, and essentially weave into that the goal of obviously having fun, building rapport, but also work on symptom management within that context of music. The responses from the patients were really a lot of fun because they tended to really enjoy the music group and some were just really inspiring and so exciting like as a clinician. There was one patient that was actively experiencing auditory hallucinations and I played some classical music and his eyes brightened and he said immediately that the voices were more manageable and even quieter and so he described it when he heard heard the music which again is a research-based coping strategy you know when someone's dealing with auditory hallucinations another psychotic patient was mostly mute he was only 19 he attended every music session and did not say a single word i kept hoping he would so i was curious to see what what he thought or what he was feeling, but he never shared anything. He attended the next section, next session of the group, and I played some of the same music that had worked really well, like eliciting responses. And one of them is the Bicycle Chase music soundtrack from the movie E.T. And if you don't know it, listen to it right away. Go on YouTube or iTunes. It's some of the best music I think ever written. So I, I played it a second time, and right away the 19-year-old said, that's the music from E.T. And I was so excited. I was stunned. I'd, I'd never heard him really talk. Like, he said yes or no to me a few times, but it, it was so cool that he, he remembered it because he even said, oh, you played that last month as well. Um, I'm a huge fan of movie soundtracks. I played the first few bars of the main theme from Young Sherlock Holmes. It's a movie from 1984. And immediately, after about three measures, 
This is even before the main theme started. One of the patients said, Oh, that's that music from the Sherlock Holmes movie. Again, I was totally stunned. And afterwards, I, I said, Oh, you know, this is another patient with psychosis. I said, When was the last time you saw that movie or heard the music? And he said, Oh, it was back in the 80s. So keep in mind, this was 25 to 30 years later. And I actually emailed the composer and told him that story. And he raised an interesting point that it is interesting or maybe makes sense that a patient with schizophrenia recognize it easily. Because the composer reminded me that several characters in the movie are poisoned with a blow dart and they actually experience visual hallucinations. So that that was a really neat neat tying in I had hadn't thought of. So that was a really cool way I ended up really interacting with a patient and then also another musician. In the men's groups we talked a lot about what music I played evoked which emotions. So anxiety, fear, anger, and we discussed how to cope with these emotions both inside and outside of jail. So I tried to find music that clearly evoked a specific emotion. My great social work idea was I'd pick one emotion and then a second and we'd discuss them in order. It would be black and white and very tidy. I was wrong. Social work is not that simple. I picked a piece called Mad Rush by the composer Philip Glass, which to me is very anxiety-provoking. The meter is not the 4-4 meter, you know, the most music on the radio is. There's dissonance, and I had planned for the discussion to be about anxiety. So I played about four minutes of that piece, and the group was split in half. Um... Half of the men said the music was irritating. They said, I feel anxious. I can't stand that sound. Half of the men, all of them had psychosis, described the music as relaxing, beautiful. And one even said I could fall asleep to that music. So I had a good professional presentation. I said, oh, okay. Yeah, tell me more. Um, My internal monologue was like, what just happened? That's the most anxiety-producing music you know, I could think of. So I went back to PubMed, and as it happens, there has been research done. There's one study specifically in 2013 that people with schizophrenia in their sample set actually processed music inside their brains differently compared to people without schizophrenia. So the study specifically identify that people with schizophrenia might find sounds and pitches less dissonant than people without schizophrenia. So it really fit the situation within the group. And I, again, that particular piece really elicited a lot of response from everyone. So I played it in other groups, in other sections, and it really was interesting how very predictably, the patients with psychosis process that music completely differently than everyone else. The women's groups, for me, were more complicated. I play the same music I did in the men's groups, which worked great for the men's music group. Not so with the women. They often said they did not like the music. If I played a song that evoked anger, they would often talk forcefully about a woman in their unit they didn't like, One woman said she was angry 
that a younger woman got Bond for setting her boyfriend's house on fire and killing him. The woman in my group said, all I did was stab a guy in the arm. Why don't I get Bond? And that kind of statement is definitely not something that I encountered in my graduate school, like our, you know, face-to-face role plays of, of counseling. So women, jail work and women's groups definitely had their challenges. A huge challenge was that sexual trauma came up a lot. So we may have been talking about something that I would not connect to trauma, like, you know, like a pop song. As an example, one woman requested Roar by Katy Perry. So there were no curse words. There were no racial slurs. My boss approved it. I said, okay. So I played that at the end of the group. There's a part of the lyrics where she sings that she's on the pavement. The woman stood up and said an ex-boyfriend raped her on the pavement outside once and would chain her to their bed and rape her. And she began dancing within the support group and was literally acting out the rapes. Um, I checked in with everyone after the song had ended. There were a few women who had schizophrenia. They said they didn't, they didn't mind. Um, there was a woman arrested for killing her toddler who joined in on the dancing. She was twerking, as they call it. Another woman laughed and said that they were both natural-born strippers. So again, very complicated types of sessions that, again, really don't fit into a textbook very well. So I was getting supervision from a social worker who's a faculty member at Emory University's medical school. And I complained about this particular session. I said I had this whole outline ready, was ready to go, and this woman began dancing, reenacting a trauma. Some other women were, you know, in my opinion, inappropriate in the way, you know, the comments they made. And frankly, I was I was complaining, and I said it was inappropriate, it was chaotic, why do they keep talking about sexual trauma, even when I play pop music? And my supervisor looked at me and said, listen to me, you need to stop being surprised and start expecting it. You need to prepare for sexual trauma to come up in your women's groups in the jails. And that was a huge moment for me. I did a lot of research online, again, using PubMed or Google Scholar. And for example, there's a great literature review that came out by... um, Carlson and Zelensky in 2020 about really the matrix of sexual victimization and mental illness, the rates of both among incarcerated women. So I began focusing the women's groups on emotional regulation. So I worked in some dialectical behavior therapy, I printed out lyric sheets, so every woman had something to hold on to, something physical to ideally help prevent disassociation, which should never happened again to that extent. One song that had a strong reaction is Madonna's Papa Don't Preach. That's a song from, I think, the 1980s. It's pretty old, but Madonna essentially plays a character telling her father that she unexpectedly got pregnant 
she could have an abortion, but she's choosing not to. So that song tended to elicit a lot of response from the women. So in one group, we talked about how half the women in the group had children as 13-year-olds because their parents would not pay for an abortion. We discussed Rihanna's Love the Way You Lie, which addresses domestic abuse. I played a lot of songs from the musical Rent. The character Mimi, for example, is a stripper. She's, she just does drugs. So I really changed the focus of the group away from really basic emotions that I did with the men and to something very specific with the women. So more, you know, sexual abuse, pregnancy, domestic abuse. What did I learn from working in corrections? I learned jails and prisons have become the mental health hospitals in the United States. I learned the intersection of mental illness, trauma, and violence and offending really come together in a really complicated center. So my idea of whether a specific crime was right or wrong really changed a lot. Once you see, or once I saw, the ways that mental illness, trauma, and offending intersect, when you see those those various things in one point in the jail, it definitely changed my perception of crime. What else did I learn? I talked to three serial killers. All of them seemed completely normal, like you always hear on crime shows. I learned to never do drugs. If anyone does do drugs, definitely don't do meth or heroin. And the most successful drug dealers wear polo shirts, have clean haircuts, and drive mid-size sedans. So, I hope you enjoyed my story. I like cheering it. And best of luck to social workers out there. Whoa. Like, in order for me to get my head around how to have this conversation in a way that's useful for our listeners... Can we focus on, firstly, the social worker in her practice? Yeah. And then come back to the actual group work and her work with, with, the, with the two different groups? I think we have to, Liz. Like, I, we have to talk about this social worker as a practitioner first, right? Right. Great. <laughs> well, let's, like, okay, so can I just say the loop that she... I, see, I, I visualise a loop that she's using in her practice and that practice is um, there was the suggestion of a group work model being used in her practice. She then went and did a literature review. Yep. Looked at what was around in terms of evidence-based practice. She then developed the program. Yep. She then ran it, reflected in it, took it to supervision in terms of what she was seeing and how it was impacting on the participants of the group. Yeah. And built on that and then did it all again. Yeah. So I think we often talk um, definitely with students, but then I know it happens in practice as well. Um, 
And the big question is how do you engage with evidence in your practice, right? So this story is a perfect example of what we would call evidence-informed practice or evidence-based practice, right? Um, <clears throat> I was just recently speaking with a manager, of a social work manager um, the other day who said to me that they've incorporated a question into interviews now for, into recruitment interviews for social workers, which says, give us as an example of when you have used evidence in your practice and how you have changed your practice because of the evidence that you have found, right? This is a perfect example of that. So for anyone who thinks that they might be daunted by a question like that, this is an example of how to do it, how to use that evidence as a way to ground you back into choosing or refining your interventions so that your practice is really targeted, right, Liz? Like that it's actually not a generalised practice that you're providing. It is targeted towards your actual clients. And I think... It's part of our ethics as social workers too, Mim, that we look into um, whether there is supporting evidence to support a way of working and engaging with, um, and in this case, a very vulnerable group of of, um, people. So ethically, it's, um, it's it's, it's, it's an ethical practice. The other thing is... Why not build our practice on the wisdom of previous social workers? Yes, that's right. Why not be learning with them and from them um, or, and then building on that or, or replicating it and then having our own experience of it and reflecting on it? Why would we not be doing that? Well, further to that, it's not even just previous social workers. I mean, this social worker did something really clever because she's working in a mental health context. She's going back to psychiatric journals. She kept talking about PubMed, which is a medical um, database, right? So she's going back to the professions that she's working within and she's saying it's not not just about social work knowledge, because we know that social work knowledge draws on a range of disciplines. So it's actually about finding the evidence that will be targeted and work with your clients and their needs at the time. That really, really impressed me about this social worker, I have to say. Do you know, for me, um, it was such a great reminder of the importance it is. And I wish if I had my time again, I wish I had graduated embedding that in my practice from the word go I think I think students are better at it than what well certainly certainly what I was um 30 plus years ago I think it is something that is strongly encouraged more now that that no matter where you go, whether it be in the clinical sphere, whether it be in the policy development sphere, whether it be, um, you know, um, back in academia, that 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 this should be woven into your practice, into your reflections. And um, I, I just, I'm glad I've got it now, but I wish I had have embedded it in my practice 30 plus years ago. Well, we've evolved as a pre- profession, haven't we? Like we've really embraced it in a different way. And I think, I think that's what we're seeing, that um, the more we incorporate the advancement of knowledge into our profession overall, the more we have to engage with knowledge that came before in order to create knowledge that then comes into the future, right? Yes. Like we have to. And- and so did you, let's segue then from that beautiful point, Mim, into the actual groups and the practice, what was well, learned firstly, as a result. 
Firstly, Liz, can I just make a comment on the fact that this social worker talked about jail sometimes being the safest place for vulnerable people with the, with the symptoms that they don't always know that they're demonstrating. I just, I mean, that some in some ways broke my heart given that we're in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement in America with all this discussion around police conduct and about, you know, taking care of the most vulnerable people in our society and to think that jails are sometimes the safest place uh, yeah. Whether that's happening in the States, whether that's happening here in Australia, I mean, and we know it happens worldwide. I just think that's a really interesting point that the social worker made. It says something about um, whether or not there's a community safety net for our vulnerable people. Well, and one would have to question whether jails are necessarily the safest place, given, you know, we're sitting in Australia at the moment and. Um, we are very aware of what can take place in our prison systems, especially if you're an Indigenous Australian. So, um, yeah, maybe in the context of some of the, the, I think she was referring to um, a person, say, with dementia. Yes, um, yes. That, that they're unable to find where they're from or whatever. They might end up in a, in, in a mental health uh, unit in prison, but that's right. Um, I, I was really curious about her comment about the intersectionality, though that that, yes. that you see in the prison system, and I think that that um, that link with um, complex trauma, um, probably she didn't mention poverty, but I'm pretty sure that she would have if if yeah. Um, I would say race in terms yes. of um, the, the the you know what we see certainly in Australia and what I understand to be the case in in America in relation to you know hugely represented they're hugely overrepresented that's right and she did talk about the intersection of mental health trauma and offending and that was really interesting as then she talked about the group right about how trauma played out in different ways and she actually had to um, change her interventions as a result of that right. Um, well, like, yeah, definitely, yeah, and 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 in relation to gender as well. That's uh, right. Maybe we come back to that in a, in a minute. But sorry, I cut you off. No, no, no. Um, that's exactly right. So I think the idea that um, she came from a music background, so she's brought music into that therapeutic space, which was just divine. Like it just worked beautifully. She had these separate groups for men and women and really had to think through how she was going to use music as a um, kickoff for some of that, um, that work. But she didn't realise that actually she was going to be going into a trauma-informed space, right? Yeah, yeah. That is interesting, isn't it? Um, that that trauma-informed, I don't know whether she mentioned that, but it most no. definitely was the perspective that she was coming from. And the other thing I loved about music was the way in which it connected to the participants of the group um, beyond language. Like it yes. connected them in a different way than our classic um, reliance on on words and the way in which it connected with people who were um, experiencing a psychotic illness um, and also the way in which it connected in the brain memories, yeah, uh, and and which reminds me of how music can often be used with people with dementia too, to to connect with memories and and then to be able to initiate conversation and connection. 
Yeah, really um, interesting actually, isn't it? And, the, you know, she gave a couple of examples of someone who hadn't spoken, a teenager who hadn't spoken at all, and then he recognised the E.T. soundtrack and how important music is in recognition, right, that actually it, it builds bridges between people as well. And can I um, share with you something that I found kind of amusing? So, Of course. <laughs> I listened to, I listened, like every time she mentioned a song, I'd pause oh, and I'd go and great. listen to it. And so when she briefly mentioned the um, Mad Rush by Philip Glass, yes. I, I went and put it on before I listened to her description of it. And I thought it was so relaxing and beautiful, mm. only to then come back and hear that she'd said that um, that, that it would split the group, that particular m- piece of music, and that the people who found it most relaxing were people that tended to have schizophrenia or, or have a psych, were in the middle of a psychotic experience. And I thought, gee, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, I'm not quite sure what to take of it, the fact that I you know, found it very, but, but again, beyond, <laughs> what does that say about you, Liz? <laughs> you know, like it could, it could say a heck of a lot, but what <sighs> I thought in terms of the social work practice, yeah. how interesting it was to get a sense from the group, the experience of it. Yeah. Um, and not just to assume that because she experienced it in a particular way that it was necessarily going to be experienced in the same way by the participants. I Like I also thought, oh, yeah, that's something really worth considering that she th- thought that, that that would initiate or inspire certain feelings in people because it did for herself, but it didn't at all for at least half of the group. Yeah. So that was – I found that really, really interesting. And then – Getting back to that gender difference, I thought that was so interesting, Mm. given that her point about how many people in jails have experienced sexual abuse or sexual assault or and that it was um, experienced, the music was experienced in a different way for the for the women and that they processed it and articulated their experience of the music differently to the male um, yeah, that's right. group participants. That's right. It's just fascinating, isn't it? Because we don't um, always jump to gender difference, actually, when we think about intersectionality. We do sometimes. And I, I have to say that um, prisons and corrective services is one of the places where gender makes an enormous difference when it comes to intersectionality and there's levels of disadvantage that people can experience in their lives. But I really liked how this was an example of how the gender differences play out in our everyday interventions. That's something that we don't often have enough of a spotlight on. I Look, I agree. Um, and the other thing I, I wanted to mention about the what came up for me when I was listening to her describe the women's group in particular mm. was the way in which um, those two group participants enacted the music enacted through the music and dance um, a, a rape scene that yeah. one of them had experienced but and and I thought one it was a really it was I would imagine very valuable for that particular woman to be like processing bodily processing through the music but I like the way that the social worker checked in with the experience of the other women yes and gauged the impact on them so that's being in responsible and caring of the and again trauma informed with the rest of the of the group but also then going back 
having her own experience of witnessing this and taking it back into supervision. Yeah. Remember that yeah, supervisor? Right. <laughs> kind of I love the supervisor saying to her, stop being shocked. <laughs> stop, start expecting. Start expecting that sexual assault histories will come up. You know, it's that, it's the voice of wisdom <laughs> coming out at her. And, and again, that loop of, of also doing some more reading in that and then coming back. And I love some of the safety measures that she incorporated into the group, like the handouts for women to hold to help them if, you know, if they're disassociating, that at least they've got something to hold, yeah. something to read. Um, and, I, and I would imagine that ongoing checking in with people throughout. Um, yeah, that, yeah, it was like, just really clever, wasn't it? that actually thinking through that information around disassociation and um, how do you be creative around that. I thought that was great. And and I think my last point that I just wanted to reflect on with, with her practice was being brave in it. Yeah. Being brave in the practice of experimenting with a particular modality that... Um, you know, she 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 knew on one level um, had some value through the literature that she she'd read. She'd, I, I guess, having come from a music background, also had her own experience of the value of music. Um, but being brave to use it with with her clients and um, and then reflecting on it and honing it and improving it and and nuancing it according to who's in the group. And I think. Um, I've learned a lot from that that loop that she articulated for us in terms of her own practice. I think as well, Liz, it's that um, uh, combination that you and I have talked about quite a lot together, which is around the combination of knowledge that comes from evidence and the, co- and the knowledge that comes from practice wisdom and from lived experience. And that actually, as a social worker, you can't just come in with theory and with evidence that's been written by other people before you. You must also practice and experience it and live it yourself, right? And try things out and make decisions as you go. Um, And one of the bugbears that, you know, I have is that we don't have enough narratives of our social work lived experience in the literature so that that's also what people are reading, that they're not just reading um, empirical evidence, that they're also reading the written down lived experience of other social workers. So I really appreciated um, that from this social worker that this is an experience of her trying things out, right, and giving it a go and then saying, well, I know everything theoretically, how does that sit with me as a social worker myself? In the, in the actual day-to-day. I loved it. The um, One of the other things that this social worker did, Mim, I don't know if you remember this, but she also sent a piece of her own music that she's composed. Oh, yeah. And maybe somehow we can look at whether we can um, share that with our listeners because she's also a beautiful, like, composer. Yeah. Um, which, which, again, I, I wonder about whether that's a nice balance between the social work as well as the creative and the mm. musical side. All right. Well, listen, yeah. listeners, we'll, um, we'll get our producers onto that and we'll, um, we'll work on that and see if we can do that for you. That would be great. Um, so thank you to that social worker and all of you out there who are listening, if you're thinking you've got a story that you also would like to share with us and let us have a discussion around the beautiful practice that's going on out there, we would love to do that. So please... Um, Get your phone out, record a voice memo and send it through to us via our website, socialworkstories.com. Uh, before we go, Liz... And don't oh, let the, um, the fact that there's a huge ocean 
and thousands of kilometres between us and you deter you from sharing. As this beautiful social worker did from Atlanta, we were able to, you know, share a story with no problem whatsoever. If there's anything that COVID-19 has taught us, it's that the world is a very small place and uh, we feel um, really close to our professional tribe out there at the moment. So, um, so definitely send us in those stories. Before we go, let's talk about um, some of our tribe, Liz, who are having a particularly hard time at the moment. I don't know how many of our listeners are up on Australian news, uh, but we're going through a bit of a second surge now where um, our Victorian colleagues are battling battling it quite tough down there. And, um, and there have been a number of uh, big uh, Department of Housing, so public housing towers that have had to be shut down or in lockdown very quickly, it happened very fast, uh, with a lot of vulnerable people at risk of not having essentials and not having information and knowledge. And it it really um, brought social work into the um, front and centre in our news for a while because uh, welfare services were heavily required in a time of need uh, where um, other structures were not put in place. We're really conscious, Liz, that um, our colleagues are having a hard time down there and um, we wanted to send a big shout out to them and stand by them at this time. Uh, but also to have a bit of a conversation about self-care because we're kind of six months into COVID-19 now, right? Uh, I don't know about you, Liz, but I'm getting tired. I think um, you and I were talking about this just before we started recording, just how for you, um, you've been in isolation pretty much, working from home for, you know, since March. Yeah. And I've been at the opposite end. I've been out and about in the hospital and um, we're just kind of reflecting on the impact that the workplace can have on us. Like for me, I've had a few days working from home this week and I feel like it's my haven when I'm in the hospital, that frenetic, frenetic energy. I realise how draining it can be. And I realise that the level of anxiety in hospitals at the moment is huge beyond what it would normally be. And I think um, I think many social workers are feeling people. Like I yeah. think we feel that stuff. I think we absorb it. And I think it's been really important for me to think about how to separate myself from that and also to think about how to get out of head and heart a bit more and to be well walking. As you know, I live near the beach, walking on the beach and also doing a lot more meditation and uh, yoga and just moving it through um, in terms of all that that's that communication that we're constantly doing and the absorption of emotion that we often um, absorb as, as social workers. It's important to be looking at how we can move it on through. Yeah, I think it's not just the absorption of emotion that we all have, like there's all these things we have in common as in a profession, right? And one of the things we have in common is that we like people and we like people's stories and we like working with other individuals, right? Now, um, so one of the impacts of on me is that, as you said, I've been working from home the whole time. I don't think I've ever been more as physically alone uh, in my every week ever in my life as I have been since COVID. And, um, and I've, I found that really tough, actually. I, I, um, as much as I love my home and I love being in my own space, um, I also really love people, it turns out, and uh, really love, you know, those corridor conversations and the quick debriefs and the quick 
um, side chats and laughing and the side laughs that will happen with your colleagues, right? And so for me, I found that to be really draining, really exhausting and um, and I've had to spend the last couple of weeks really coming back to my body and my um, how I travel in this world uh, because I've come to a point where um, it's actually not enough for me and... Um, yeah, I think when we think about what nourishes us on an everyday level, thinking about our self-care, and I know that's often a token phrase for people, but if we really think deeply about that, about what nourishes us, what gives us energy, what um, and conversely what depletes us, then it's really important as social workers, I think, to tap into, like you've just said, head and heart, uh, but I would also add body to that. Um, because I think the way we carry ourselves in our world, in our everyday, whether you're at home mostly, whether you're in a frenetic environment like the hospital, whether you're in a small community service that isn't getting as much traffic as it normally would, um, all of these environmental changes are impacting how we relate our head, our heart and our body. And so I would be saying to our colleagues, um, just take a minute to really sit there and tap into that, reflecting on what you need to make sure that you're nourished in the coming months. It's, it's it, this, The hardness of COVID-19 is just continuing, right, Liz? So I think we all need to be thinking about um, how we're going to cope in the next however many months going forward. And, you know, it's that whole adage in the aeroplane, isn't it? Put the face mask on you before you can help others. So before mm. we can get in there and do all that really important work with other people, we've got to be taking care of ourselves and of each other. It starts with self. Yeah, yeah. So we're thinking of you all um, in Victoria. We're thinking of our colleagues down there. And if anyone ha- would like to give us a call, send pop us an email or recording and let us know how it has been for you down there, we'd be really interested to know and um, sending out all our solidarity to you all as well at this time. I know it's been hard for our social work colleagues in other countries as well and so um, hopefully this reaches you all as well and um, take care of yourselves, everyone. Please get in touch with us, Instagram, Twitter, socialworkstories.com. be great to hear from you. Thanks, everyone. Take care of yourselves. Bye, Liz. Bye, Mim.